But, but what we did was we crucified a condom <laughs> on the steps of the church. Like we brought a cross on a hammer and nails. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Listening Beyond, a podcast of the School of Community and Public Affairs at Concordia University in Jojage, Montreal. Bonjour et bienvenue à Listening Beyond, a balado de l'école en affaires publiques et communautaires. Before we begin, we acknowledge that Concordia University is located on unceded indigenous lands. The Kanyankehaka Nation is recognized as the custodians of the land and waters on which you gather today. Jojage is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. Today, it is home to diverse populations of Indigenous and other peoples. We respect the continued connection with the past, present, and future in our ongoing relationships with Indigenous and other peoples within the Montreal community. In this episode, we are joined by Izzy Kamikaze, an activist and civil rights campaigner in Ireland across gay liberation, the 1980s HIV epidemic, and the decriminalization of abortion, among many other causes. She recounts stories of provocative direct action used to draw attention to injustice, drawn from the values of a trailblazing trade union household. She shares her lessons learned from decades of activism, concluding with advice for both the old guard and the new. This episode was created and produced by Amalek Escobar, Joshua Salos, and Eleanor Hamilton. Izzy begins by telling us about her family and the different people who made her into the person she is today. My name before I rechristened myself, my name was Ruth O'Rourke. And my mother has told me that... uh, the father of a girl I went to school with uh, said to uh, stopped her in the town one day and said that you know his daughter was always talking about Ruth O'Rourke said this Ruth O'Rourke did that I'd be I'd be fucking clowning in the classroom like basically I was an impossible uh, child to teach I'd say um, smart but not uh, no application you know <laughs> whatsoever and. Uh, it, her, uh, it was just odd what he said, but what, what he said to my mother was that um, his daughter had come home saying some story, again, my name, my name was always in these stories, and that he had said to her, you have to, this is like probably 1970, something like that, probably seven. He said, if there's ever a first woman on the moon, it'll be Ruth O'Rourke. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I guess I was making, you know, some kind of waves, but, you know, it was for, like, not fitting into what people expected, you know. There still hasn't been a first woman on the moon. Maybe it's not too late. Has it been? There hasn't, no. I'm the eldest in my family. Uh, I think eldest kids often are activists actually I've, I've noticed among my activist friends anyway that they seem to be more likely to be the older one rather than the younger one uh, because the older one has to fight for everything you know <laughs> and they experiment on you something rotten 
your parents, you know, they're they're just working stuff out and they 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 do everything to extremes and you have to try and find a kind of navigate your way out of it. Uh, my mother uh is a very determined person, <laughs> really. Uh, there's a, there's an amazing picture of my mother in the late 1950s. Uh, her her father was a printer, so a compositor, which is a, a, a dead craft now. But he he was a hot metal man, <laughs> you know. And uh, so the 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 newspaper business was was kind of in the blood. Was there, and uh, she was very do- devoted to her father. Uh, who died suddenly when she was 15. And uh, after which she, she dropped out of school, much to the annoyance of her mother, and who had ambitions for her and, and uh, you know, got a job in a shop and then got a job in a factory. But she, she just, she got it into her head that she was going to be a journalist. Uh, she'd read a couple of books by uh, women journalists She'd probably seen some Hollywood movies, you know, <laughs> with the with the uh, glamorous young female journalist. But but like even on the national papers in Ireland, there really weren't uh, more than a couple of women at that time. So it was an outlandish thing for her to want. She initially she told me she initially wanted to be a lawyer, but that but you had to have money <laughs> to get to be a lawyer. Uh, so the the next thing was a journalist, and she. Uh, she did a lot of night classes, like she worked in a shop and she worked in the factory and she learned, uh, she went to night classes and she uh, learned shorthand and typing, which obviously you had to have. Um, and she did, um, I think it was like a social science diploma or something. And she kept going to the office of the editor of the local paper who had thought very highly of her father and had looked after the family the best he could when, you know, which was not very generous, but but it was more than most people got in the same circumstances when there was a, a sudden bereavement. And uh, yeah, she took to going and sitting outside his office and demanding to see him and saying, gives a job uh, on a regular basis. And eventually he did. I mean, he, he told her it wasn't uh, a, a suitable job for a young lady and so on but he gave her he gave her a trial and she was 19 at that point and she retired out of the same place at 65 uh, had to be more or less bulldozed out of the place admittedly but but yeah she just she just decided to do it and she did it but but it was extremely unusual at the time and she she always worked like she left um while we were very small. I, the, uh, there's me and I have a sister who's a year and three months younger than me and, uh, I, and and another sister who came along later. But while we were very small, until we went to primary school, in those days you went to primary school at four. Uh, so for that long, she didn't work in the office, but she was still uh, writing a column for them and uh, sub-editing at home we call them we call them nixers uh is the expression we use in ireland um i think the nix refers to the fact that you don't pay tax on it usually do you know what i mean it's it's a it's a it's a black economy uh 
type of arrangement usually. I don't know if it was for her or not, but 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 yeah, she she did was doing what amounted to journalistic piecework at home while we were very small kids, and as soon as we went to school, she went back. But you know, I do come from people that have had a very highly developed sense of justice and right and wrong, and they were prepared to stick their necks out. You know, they were prepared to be in a minority if if they believed in what they were doing. And like I said, there was there was a huge um, journalist strike. It was actually the year that my youngest sister was born, so I was 10. My father was father at the chapel at the time just by pure bad luck and uh, thereby got a lot of the, the flack that was coming in terms of the uh, uh, long-running strike that was going on. So, you know, I mean, I remember some of that. Finding it difficult to draw people's attention to injustice, Izzy next shares some of the strategies of artistic and provocative direct action that she used to stand out as the institutions around her failed to meet the common good. Uh, the the uh, then Pope said that it was a sin to use condoms, even to protect from HIV. But there was a loophole which was that you could use a condom in the hope of protecting from HIV if you pierced the condom with a pin to allow for the possibility of conception. So then what we did was we got our condom costumes out again and we went to the steps of the pro-cathedral. And this was around the same time it was very, very shortly after, weeks after, uh, ACT UP did the protests in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, which was electrifying at the time. Nothing like that had ever happened in a Catholic church. Do you know what I mean? They did it first, but we did it second in Dublin. But we didn't go into the church because we would have been killed. But but what we did was we crucified a condom <laughs> on the steps of the church. Like we brought a cross on a hammer and nails. <laughs> Slightly before my time, just before I came out, and that's why I'm a little bit vague on some of the details, uh, but basically some of the uh, sort of left wing, left wing, more radical queers came together and formed something called the Dublin Gay Collective, uh, which later became the Dublin Lesbian and Gay Collective and later still became the Dublin Lesbian and Gay Collectives <laughs> for a short period before... Um, uh, self-combusting, but but uh, an incredibly uh, important group. In ter- all of the AIDS activism came out of that same little group of people that that formed um, the Dublin Gay Collective. Um, Declan Flynn was cruising essentially in a in a in a park, Fairview Park, quite close to um, the centre of Dublin, and there had been. Um, a series. I mean, I knew people who had been beaten up there. Uh, it, it, it had been going on for months. It was basically a group of young men uh, in the area who had appointed themselves uh, sort of vigilante vigilantes um, to get the queers out of the park. And um, Declan Flynn got uh, 
assaulted by these guys and died uh, very brutally, horrifically, was, was beaten to death in the park and left there. There's a lot of anger in the community about that too. And uh, a, a number of people um, a number of gay men had in fact gone to the cops uh, having been assaulted there before Declan Flynn died. A number of guys had reported to the cops and, and really that was a huge thing uh, for anybody to do at the time. Uh, but I knew, I knew, I'm not in touch with them anymore, but I knew two people who had, who had, um, who had attempted to report uh, being assaulted in the park and had basically been laughed out of the station, you know, um, uh, treated in a very demeaning kind of way. Um, so then, yeah, I came out in September, I, I literally within, I can't remember if it was a couple of weeks before, or a couple of weeks after Declan Flynn died. I think it was a couple of weeks after um, the trial happened the following March and um, the first of all they, they were it was manslaughter that they were charged with uh, and the judge in his summing up basically the judge had uh, sympathies for the homosexual panic defense and uh, said this could never be considered murder um, and uh, he convicted them of manslaughter but gave them suspended sentences which means they walked out um, they did no time at all there were two murders of gay men that happened at that time and the cops the, the two men were called uh, Charles Self uh, Charles Self was murdered uh, in his own home by somebody that he met in a bar, uh, very viciously murdered, and nobody was ever um, charged with it. It's still an unsolved murder. Uh, I never met the man. I know a number of people. He was two or three years older than me, so I know a number of men in their 60s now who, who, who knew Charles. It was his... Anniversary, anniversary recently, his name comes up from time to time. Uh, the cops in investigating that murder particularly because it seemed like, you know, it was someone he brought home with him. So the presumption that the police made based on that, which is not necessarily the case, is that it was somebody gay. Uh, and uh, which gave them a great excuse to um, harass people who were on the gay scene. Um, so uh, the NGF came under pressure to uh, open up their membership records. Uh, I don't know what the cops got out of the membership records because I remember I used to sit on the on the um, at the admission desk. Sometimes we all, everybody did, anybody who was around would take a turn and like people would come and show their membership card to get in free to the, not free, but for 70, 70 pence <laughs> into the disco. And uh, they would show you this thing and like their membership card would say Mickey Mouse. <laughs> you 
know, Daffy Duck. Like it, 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 lots and lots of people signed up anonymously and uh, I'd say very few of them gave their addresses or I, I gave my address. So I used to get the new newsletter and, and stuff through the post, but I'd say a lot of people didn't. So I don't know how much use it was to them, but certainly uh, a lot of people who had um, some involvement with the gay scene uh, received uh, visits either at home, you know, people who were closeted and living with their families and the cops were turning up and interviewed them about a murder. They were turning up at people's workplaces. There were people who lost their jobs over it. Um, it just became this massive, big harassment campaign. That was a very radicalizing thing in the community at that time. And the Dublin Gay Collective were the kind of left-wing queers and the... Um, and decided to organise a march. We were going on marches every week, right? We had all these banners, gays against imperialism, <laughs> gays against the amendment. <laughs> we, had, we, we had a different kind of front group every week, but it was the same 12, 13 people. Um, and we decided to organise a, a march to Fairview Park uh, which was very scary. We were we were going on marches every week and stuff, but there hadn't there had not at that point been any um, gay led march in Dublin. There had not been uh, Pride had been celebrated, um, and there on a couple of prides there had been, um, you know, uh, picket on embassies about something that was happening abroad, that kind of thing, yeah? And and 10 or 12 people doing something. But there hadn't been, like, hundreds of obviously gay people <laughs> marching through the streets. And what we were doing was we weren't marching in the city centre either, which would have been relatively safe. We were marching out of the city centre uh, through a sort of run-down uh, working-class area um, to a park where uh, some local young men had uh, killed a queer to the general approval of a lot of people at the time. Uh, there was a quote-unquote victory march uh, the day they got released from court you know their neighbors came out and cheered them on the on the street and stuff uh, so I was on that and that's called the Fairview Park March there's lots of stuff written about it so if it's interesting to look up but uh, here in Ireland people are inclined to call it Ireland Stonewall <laughs> and uh, I was there uh, I was on that so that um, that was uh, radicalizing, and I think it was radicalizing for the whole community. Uh, now it, it happened in March. Uh, the weather tends to be not the best here in March, and uh, it was no different then. Uh, but uh, an awful lot of people, like not many people, were out of the closet. Really, then, because nobody could afford to be out of the closet. Nobody would employ you. You know. <laughs> Nobody would employ you. Uh, families, the the shame was dreadful. Nobody was out of the closet. So uh, you, the ideas, of, uh, the idea of doing this march, and there was a lot of media attention on the march because, of course, it had been a big case that had been all over the papers. And in fairness to a lot of people who were just sort of liberals, <laughs> a lot of people were very upset by this judgment. In fairness, yeah. 
and a lot of civil civil society groups did join in uh, the march. And I don't know what we got. We might have got five or six hundred, which was a very respectable showing at the time. Um, and um, a lot of lots and lots of gay people went, but most of them didn't march behind the gay banners. <laughs> so, you know, the Dublin Gay Collective had this fluorescent pink fishnet. It was very avant-garde for the time banner um, with hardly anybody marching behind it. And then, you know, the Grapevine Arts Centre, which was this tiny little um, art centre, but didn't have, most of the people that were involved in it were gay, but it didn't have gay in the name anywhere. They probably had about 100 <laughs> behind theirs, you know. Uh, and uh, what I remember is people with, you know, hats and uh, collars up and scarves up over noses. But they did it. But they did it, you see. It was huge to do it, and as some things are are huge now, you know, in, in it's not too hard to think of of examples. But but um, I think it changed a lot of people taking. I think a lot of the people who went even very kind of muffled up and stuff like they went. They they marched with a whole bunch of gay people. Uh, did a much scarier route than you'd normally be doing and all of that, and the sky didn't fall. Uh, and a couple of months later, uh, three three months later, I suppose, June, uh, we had the first Pride March that ever happened in Dublin. And so younger people now are inclined to uh, conflate the two, and they'll say, oh, the first Pride March was the Fairview Park, Fairview Park March. I always feel it's really important to separate those things because the Fairview Park March was somber, you know. Uh, it was scary. It, it wasn't at all um, a pride parade, you know. But the thing that we did three months later uh, was really very joyful and uh, carefree and we'd built a lot of good connections because of the anti-amendment campaign and because of all of those anti-amendment campaign comrades came on the Fairview Park March and a lot of them came out, but it was a lot easier a few months later, the weather was better, <laughs> you know, nobody was wearing the overcoats or anything, people just came out and did it, you know, uh, they were, uh, uh, pride marches they were called in those days, they weren't as flamboyant as they subsequently became, but, but um but they were, you know, pretty joyful and uninhibited, just the same. It, it's a completely different vibe from the thing you do after someone's been murdered, you know. And then a few few years later, HIV came along and I was involved in, in setting up a little local ACT-UP group here. The, the numbers were so tiny, you know, we never had more than about eight or nine people in that group. We kept it going for for 13 months and every month we did an action. So we did 13 actions. That was um, how many we managed. But we went and, you know, chained ourselves to things. We, we strung a, a washing line across the river in the middle of town and hung out the, the government's dirty laundry. Like we did these kind of art actions. I came, you know, I told you I was working in theatre and stage management. I went from that into community arts. Went from that, this is in terms of how I made my living. Went from community arts into kind of community work 
and went from community working to social care. So it's been, you know, all of this stuff is connected, I suppose. Last, Izzy shares some of her thoughts and advice for experienced activists and new activists alike, how they can bridge intergenerational gaps and the limits of relying on nonprofit institutionalization for activism. You know, I do feel sorry for young people coming out now. I think in some ways they don't they don't have the space to find themselves um, without being, you know, exposed to the hostility of complete strangers. You know, I mean, your neighbours and your colleagues and so on, like there are limits, there are boundaries on, on just how abusive that they can be to you because there's some kind of social contract, you know. But some like anonymous troll on the Internet has no boundaries about how badly they can treat you. And, and young people who haven't found their feet yet are just getting submerged in that bullshit you know um and intergenerational stuff is important to me it always has been i mean i think it's important to all of us i think i think we work better when 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 we work together we have different things to put into it you know and i i i know like really from it, it starts so young from my late 30s on i started finding like people who were my age we're like bitching about, oh, of course, the young people don't know they're born. Uh, they have it so easy. Yeah. They, they don't understand the way things were for us. They're not interested. And I, I, even then I'd be saying, well, have you tried talking to them about it? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because my experience is they are interested. Yeah. But, but like they don't, they just don't know. And how are they going to know if you don't tell them? You know, who's going to tell them if you're not? Uh, who's going to have that conversation with them? Because I've always found that actually people are interested, yeah? Um, but they don't see it exactly the same way. They will challenge it. And a lot of people don't like to be challenged. I think maybe, you know, I mean, I think everywhere things have gone into reverse a little over the last few years, you know? Um because the the other side, the opposition has kind of got its shit together and they have a lot of money and and a lot of power and they had some lucky breaks and um, and everybody's been on the back foot. And I think maybe I'm a bit less put out by that than a lot of people because I didn't really like the way things were going anyway. Everything was getting uh, very sort of respectable, you know, and the, you know, nothing could happen without either funding from the state or corporate funding. And where I come from, the time that I'm talking to you about, uh, we couldn't have imagined ever, we didn't think we'd ever have either of those things. Uh, you know, when the Eighth Amendment got passed, I didn't think I'd see it out of my lifetime. You know, now I was I was 19 and I was uh, 56, I think, by the time we actually got rid of it. So, you know, it took a long time, uh, but it did go. But I wouldn't have thought it would ever have gone in my lifetime. Um, Ireland seemed like it was... Um, preserved in aspic, you know, it's it seemed like 
almost impossible to change anything. So uh, I I cut my teeth in this kind of milieu where we had nothing and we expected nothing. And all that we had was uh, our ingenuity and our um, camaraderie and um, creativity, you know, but, but uh, we we had time. We were we were underemployed. Uh, you know, there was a, there was a depression on. Hardly anybody had work. Um. So, we had a lot of uh, yeah time and energy and creativity to put into stuff, and we had no money. And and we did amazing stuff. Uh, everything that happened afterwards was made possible by stuff that happened then. So back around the time when, you know, in 2008, when the crash happened and, and uh, funding started getting much more difficult, um, you know, I really felt that my mission at that time in relation to, to LGBT activists that were younger than me was I wanted to sit down and say to them, no, this is brilliant. <laughs> this is actually brilliant because now you can do what you want. You know, if they don't give you anything, you don't owe them anything. And it's up to you what you do. And the limits are, you know, to do with the limits of your imagination or... or, or uh, how much time you're prepared to put in or how many friends you can persuade to come along with you, you know? Um, and uh, because everything had gone in the direction where like you couldn't do anything without having, you know, an office and a staff and uh, you couldn't have done anything without having hundreds of thousands of euro at your disposal. And whoever that money came from was going to have expectations of you, you know? And that was going to restrict you. So I, I as, as far back as 2008, which is whatever now, it's going on 14, 14 years. So I was in my early 40s. But, um, I felt terribly older and wiser. And uh, yeah, that was what I wanted to say to people was, was, this is good. This is an opportunity. You know, grab this. Like, this is, this is freedom. You can kind of punch above your weight with that stuff. People, people, we think in images, you know, and and um, metaphors, you know. It's it's a way of working with people. So sometimes doing something like yes, stringing a washing line across the across the river, and you know, hanging dirty clothes on it or whatever it is, um, it can make it can make a more powerful statement than. Um, a public meeting, uh, uh, a website, you know, the, 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 the kind of things that people tend to start thinking with. Because really what you want to do is to get people talking. And none of that stuff gets people talking. They're just too used to it. You know, they just see that stuff all the time in March, a, a, a public meeting, um, a new website, a new social media account or whatever. People are just saturated with that stuff. So you need to do something a little bit skew-whiff, to kind of grab their interest. So, uh, and ACT UP, I think ACT UP was, uh, I think ACT UP was one of the huge, you know, really huge social movements of, of the 20th century, you know? I, I think ACT UP was phenomenally important and it changed the whole um, relationship of, people to medicines, they changed the whole drug trial system. 
it it changed a whole a whole lot of things, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I think in the in the kind of battles that we have on our hands now, that's where I would like us to be looking. Um, I, th- I think sometimes we get too caught up in the respectability politics, and I, I would like to see us playing a few more wild cards. We'd like to thank Izzy for joining us in this episode of Listening Beyond. We learned that art can be a powerful conversation starter and that it can bridge generations of activists together. We also learned that preoccupation with people's approval can be a constraint more than an asset in activism, and that our message can break through easier by taking a visible stand. In recognizing that this episode discussed homophobic violence, we would like to share the LGBTQ resources listed on MontrealPrideTherapyNetwork.com slash resources. Thank you for listening to this episode of Listening Beyond. Continue listening to explore other stories of people making change in their communities. Merci d'avoir écouté cet épisode de Listening Beyond. Continuez à écouter pour explorer d'autres histoires de personnes qui apportent des changements dans leur communauté. This podcast is produced by the students in SCPA 352, Community and Local Activism, in the School of Community and Public Affairs at Concordia University in Montreal. Music by Ketza, supervised by Dr. Anna Scheftel. The School of Community and Public Affairs Student Association generously provided funding for this project. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a rating or sharing with friends. 